It is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is episode 2880, 2880, and uh, it is Thursday, 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 yeah, Thursday, Thursday. What the hell? Uh, we're going to be doing an expert Q&A show today, and this is going to be one of those shows where uh, I've made another adjustment to another adjustment, and tomorrow we're going to have Miyagi Mornings Recap, and there's a bunch of change coming yet again to the change that already just came, and it's because the change didn't work for me. So, what's this all about, right? So, if, for those that may be very new to the show, I, I have been doing the show the same way since 2010. From 20, uh, 2008 to 2010, I think it was around January 2nd, 2010 was my first uh, show as a full-time podcaster, up till then I did the show in my car on my way to work, and pretty much I've done the show five days a week. Since 2010, since 11 years plus. And every day I do a show and I publish it. I do the show and I publish it. I do the show and I publish it. And when I started doing Miyagi morning segments, I figured out, hey, I can make another podcast out of this. And, and as you guys know, I've been listening recently. I decided to take the Miyagi Mornings recap and instead of doing six podcasts a week, go back to five and use it as one to give myself three-day weekends. And... For some reason, in my brain, I thought it made sense to run the Miyagi Mornings podcast on Monday. It does not make sense. So this week is bookended by two Miyagi Mornings recaps. That won't happen in the future. Next week, of a full week, and Friday will be Miyagi Mornings. And then the next week, a full week, and Friday is the Miyagi Mornings show. And the Expert Council show now becomes a Thursday show. And interview shows will mostly stay the Wednesday. We'll be doing some weeks where we're doing two interviews. We're getting a lot of interview requests from really interesting guests, so there'll be shows where we weeks where we have two interviews, and Monday will always be a standalone show with just me. And sometimes Monday and Tuesday will be standalone shows with just me. So that's the new way things are working. Um, there's just a couple things. One, I just it's change, and nobody loves change, and um, too much change at once. Trying to change not only. The format, but also changing, doing the show for Tuesday on Monday and on Wednesday doing the show on Tuesday. I, I, I really, it throws me out of sync. And item of the day is not just about me making money. It's become a very integral segment uh, to the show. And picking an item that it just, it's just a mess. So hopefully you guys will understand basically my complete and utter failure this week. I mean, it threw me so off that I feel like I didn't give you my best work this week. I had a great interview yesterday. That's now going to run on Monday. Um, that'll be like one more change where everything goes back to totally normal, sort of, a new normal. Um, but that was on cryptocurrency, a cryptocurrency called Hush. I'll be bringing you that on Monday. The reason I'm going to go ahead and do that is I was originally not going to have a show Monday because it's Memorial Day. I was going to take it off and have a four-day weekend. So I'm still going to have a four-day weekend. I'm going to throw that together for you guys, get it set up to run out on Monday, and then we're going to go into this new schedule, which, again, is Monday through Thursday, basically like it's always been, except the Expert Council show moves up. Yogi Morning's on Friday. All right. Uh, uh, what are we going to talk about today, then, though, with the Expert Council? Um, I am making some changes to the Expert Council. Uh, Mike and Sula Priest did bow out quite graciously as our homeschool and rearing children uh, experts. 
And uh, I said, we need somebody new. And, and they did that just in case anybody wonders why, because they just don't have the time and they knew they weren't meeting the commitment, right? So I was giving them a lot of grace because they do such a good job and not really pushing on them and saying they were piking. But they're like, we are piking. We're kind of going nomadic now. We're just not getting it done. And so maybe you can find somebody that would fill that slot. Well, Amy Dingman from A Farmish Kind of Life threw her hat in the ring, and I have her uh, first segment for you today. She's going to talk about homeschooling and socialization. I have some thoughts on that as well. Tim the Toolman Cook is going to talk about building a side business in dealing with and clearing scrub brush, and he's being asked about a chainsaw, but he's going to give you some other better tools for the job, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, we do have Memorial Day weekend coming up. How about a great potato salad recipe? I'm not a big potato guy, but some of you guys are. How about a baked potato salad from Chef Keith Snow? Nick Ferguson on talk, will talk about using knotweed as rabbit fodder instead of seeing it as a pain in the ass, actually see it as a resource. Uh, Doc Bones will talk about the care and treatment of pneumonia patients dealing with the condition himself right now. No, not COVID. Like, I think it's, we got to the point now where everything is COVID, right? Like pneumonia has been a problem for humanity forever. Um, and uh, there are other things that cause pneumonia other than COVID. So Doc Bones will be talking about that. Derek Pompietro has a great segment for you on vehicle safety and vehicle preps. And I'll be covering our quote of the day. And uh, it is by um, one of, one of the, the, the most motivational minds in our time, in my opinion, Vince Lombardi. I'll be anchoring the show with that. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and, and get straight on into it. Amy Dingman talking about homeschooling and socialization. Hey, Jack and fellow TSPers. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website, as well as the Homeschooling Mom website. And I'm here to answer a commonly asked question about homeschooling. What about socialization? As someone who homeschooled her sons all the way through, I have one who graduated from homeschooling this year with two years of college under his belt, and I will have another graduate next year. I've heard this question a lot. What about socialization? Now, whether you are someone who questions the validity of homeschooling or you're a potential homeschooler who's worried about socialization or you're a current homeschooler who just wants to know how to answer this question when you're asked, let's dig into this. Because after all these years, I've figured a few things out about this whole socialization question. One reason that some folks assume homeschoolers will have a hard time being socialized is because they're thinking back to their own education. Many people remember school, whether public or private, as the first place they were surrounded by a lot of people and therefore had the opportunity to make a ton of friends. They wonder, without school, how would they have met anyone or learned how to act in a group setting? Now, anyone who knows an actual homeschooler will tell you that whole being locked in the basement thing is a myth. And most homeschoolers I know are off adventuring out in the big wide world more than they're actually home. They're interacting with people of all ages and all backgrounds in real life settings instead of interacting mostly with kids all the same age in a classroom. But I've found that when most people ask about socialization, even people who are considering homeschooling, they aren't really even sure what they mean by socialization. It's just that thing that people worry about and ask about without really thinking it through. I really think the best way to answer this socialization question is with a couple questions of your own. The first is to ask the person, or yourself, what do you mean by socialization? What do they think of as a well-socialized individual? What do you think of as a well-socialized individual? When I ask people this after they've asked me the socialization question, most people can't answer. 
They just shrug or give me a blank stare or trip around some kind of answer because most people haven't really thought about what they consider socialized to mean. A few definitions I have received over the years are a well-socialized person knows how to politely conduct themselves in a situation with people who are much different than they are, or understands how to respectfully disagree with someone, or how to walk away from a conversation that's heading south. A well-socialized person also appropriately engages in a conversation with one or more people, meaning they make eye contact, they nod, they listen, they respond, they contribute to the conversation. A well-socialized person also has the ability to pick up on social cues, which vary depending on the group or the circumstance, so they know if the way that they're acting is acceptable. Because here's the thing about homeschoolers and socialization. People are worried that homeschoolers will be weird or quiet, or won't know when to be quiet. That's all because of homeschooling, right? No, actually it's not. There have been weird and quiet and, oh my word, will you please stop talking kinds of people since the beginning of time. I went to public school, and if there is some stereotypical way that homeschoolers act, I can think of many homeschoolers who were apparently hiding out at my public school. Whatever the reason for the persistence in the but what about socialization question, here's the second question I think we should be asking naysayers to consider, or you yourself if you're worried about socialization. Here it is. For all this talk about homeschoolers needing to make sure they are well socialized so they can fit in with mainstream society, have you been in public lately? We live in a world of road rage, impatience with a cashier, rude comments to the waitstaff, People who loudly belittle their kids or their spouse at the grocery store. Have you watched the news? I mean, I generally don't, and there's a reason for that. But suffice to say, I generally refer to the nightly newscast as let's see who did what to whom today. Have you been on Facebook or Twitter? We've got people starting fights over something as simple as a quote or a picture of a field of soybeans. We've got people who don't understand the concept of if it doesn't apply to you, just scroll who instead start little keyboard warrior fights threatening each other and calling each other names. Should we assume all those people are the ones who didn't catch on to socialization? Should we assume all those people who can't conduct themselves in public were homeschooled? Come on, you worry that homeschoolers will be weird? You want them to fit in? Fit into what exactly? If you bring all of this up to someone who's asking about socialization, they will probably say the fact those people are jerks or irresponsible or weird or scary or angry or any number of things has nothing to do with where they went to school and has everything to do with how they're choosing to act in public. I would respond with, we should apply that totally logical statement to homeschoolers as well. Listen, my kids have quirks, your kids have quirks, we all have quirks. But through this whole homeschooling thing, I always figured if my kids could be engaged in polite conversation, excuse themselves from a conversation that's going south, do what needs to be done when they don't necessarily want to do it, respectfully disagree with someone, conduct themselves in daily matters in the world, and advocate for themselves when it's required, I figured we were probably doing okay. And you know what? My kids can do that. And you know why? I think it's because it's how they choose to act. That's their choice, and it's their responsibility. But I also think it's because it was modeled for them. And when we were in situations with people where that wasn't modeled, there was a discussion about it. So maybe the real socialization question is, who do you want modeling behavior for your kids? And how varied do you want their experiences to be? Do you want to live in a box of isolation for six and a half hours a day, or do you want to be out in the big wide world? 
Homeschooling is not going to unsocialize your kids. More often than not, it's going to expose them to more social situations and more opportunities to learn how to handle themselves, more than kids who spend all day in a classroom. It's going to give them opportunities to think critically and respond genuinely. It's going to give them the freedom to have real interactions. A 13-year-old who can be around a 4-year-old as easily as they can be around a 60-year-old they're not even related to is pretty awesome. But in order to do that and not think it's weird, it generally means they have to do something other than spend every single day in a room of 13-year-olds. And you've got a lot of time and freedom to do that as a homeschooler. When you dig into it, the socialization question is really a non-issue for homeschoolers as long as you're taking advantage of the freedoms and the flexibilities that homeschooling gives you. Jack, thanks for the opportunity to answer a question for your amazing audience and TS peers. Have a great day. So I'm I'm really glad to have Amy on. She's great. I've followed her work for a long time. So when uh she asked about being on, I said, "Hey, put something together on the fly. That wasn't a listener question. It was just something that is probably the most common thing in homeschooling." And if you have questions for Amy, and you can check out her website, A Farmish Kind of Life, and her podcast. Anything you'd like to hear her talk about on the air here, you can send it to me, Jack at the Survival Podcast.com, TSPC expert in the subject line. Give me your question and tell me who it's for, in this case, Amy. But any of the members of our expert council, you can send in questions for them. Again, TSPC expert in the subject line. Question in one sentence, then give me details on who you want to direct the question to. Sometimes you say, like, whatever expert council member you think, and It's okay, but I'd prefer if you told me who you wanted to hear from. It, it, it usually works out better that way. All right, so here's my additions to this. First of all, I completely agree with everything Amy said. Secondly, I I just have this kind of like sarcastic me inside of me. Right? Sometimes you guys get to see that sarcastic me. He comes out, dark Jack. And what I always want to say to somebody when they when they say something like this, exactly what socialization components do you feel a child most misses by not going to uh, government schools? Uh, being bullied or learning how to bully or, you know, both so they can find their place in the pecking order of bullying. Uh, how to buy and sell and trade drugs with people in the hallway. Um, how to be beaten up and abused and picked on. Uh, there's so many things that go down in schools that are negative. And we can replace all the positives and eliminate almost all the negatives. I think we will all have to deal with some, certain negative things in our life, but I don't think that, that a, a 12-year-old trying to deal with learning new mathematical skills needs to be picked on for the color of their hair or the clothes that they're wearing. right? And people talk about, well, it's the real world. No, it's not the real world. This is one of the greatest mass delusions of all time, that the way that children are treated in schools is the real world. It is the antithesis of the real world. Most of the things that happen to kids in school that are negative, if they happen in a workplace or if you know they happen in some sort of public setting or even a private setting, the offender is either going to jail, getting fired, getting sued, or a combination of two or all three is what's happening. That's the real world. You don't get to just abuse people in the real world. You don't. But in school, it happens all the time, and it's kind of like, well, kids are being kids. No, kids are being little bastards because we're not instilling discipline in them. And you can't instill discipline in all the kids that go to the government school that the government says your child must attend. But you can instill discipline in your own child, and you can instill discipline in those that they associate with voluntarily. 
That you can do. The other thing about this, and this, this kind of blew my mind when this happened recently. I was discussing this, and it's kind of like the same but different part of this subject with a family member. And this family member said to me, but the one thing they don't get is learning how to get along with people that they don't generally get along with, to be able to figure out how to adapt to like working with people that you just generally don't get along with. And I had to bite my tongue because I love this person, but I've known this person now to have four jobs, and this person tells me how bad the people treat them at every job they've ever had. Now, I love this person, but the common denominator in four different workplaces and not being able to get along with people is this person, not the people they didn't get along with. So what I wanted to say, and, and really, what I really want to say was just, uh, just uh, really? Did you, can, you, can you think about that for a minute? And if it didn't happen all by itself, like, and how did that work out for you? How, how great are your skills of working with people that you don't get along with because you went to government school? But I didn't, because that wouldn't have been helpful. But it amazes me, and this is right. What, what made me think of that was when Amy said, when most people say socialization, they don't even know what they're saying. They don't know what they mean. The first question, well, what do you mean by that? How exactly does that work? So you're saying that people that go to government schools in general get along in the workplace with people that they don't like? They do? Really? No. What happens when you, when you start working for a living... Whether you did it because you went to government school or private school or home school or whatever, the reason you learn to get along with other people is because then if you don't, you lose your job. But no one's relegated to you're not allowed to sit at this table or being mocked or being harassed on social media after hours. Like None of that shit is the real world. And none of that is quote-unquote socialization. So I love starting out with, well, what do you mean by socialization? Because most people don't know what they mean. What they're looking for is an objection, and so they settle on the one that seems the most logical while it is really one of the most illogical. One of the most illogical there is. Next up, what about building a side business, kind of in that handyman realm, but fixing a problem for people? That's how you build a business. Scrub brush, clearing it, chainsaw. As soon as I got this question, I'm like, yeah, I like the idea, but chainsaws and scrub brush are not... Good friends. That's not really the right tool for the right job. Tim Cook knows a little bit about tools, and he'll talk about the subject now. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim back here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back again to answer a question for the expert counsel, so let's dive right in. This week's question says, Hey, Jack, this question is for Toolman Tim of All Seasons Maintenance. What would you suggest as a beginning chainsaw or set of chainsaws and tools for scrub brush clearing as a new side hustle? A little more information. I work on farms all around my local area, and the main complaint I keep hearing is that they can't get anyone in to clear scrub. Brush, I think you call it in your area. Because their land is too remote and too steep, which in New Zealand means manuka and kanuka tea trees, which are quite hard and anywhere from an inch to 24 inches in diameter, though most will be about three to six inches. I would like to get into offering this service, but know nothing about chainsaws. What initial gear would you suggest and what other tips or wisdom might you be able to offer? Thanks for all your help. Saul from New Zealand. So. Saul, thanks for sending in this question. I love talking about chainsaws and cutting down trees. I also love hearing the drive that you have, that you want to get up and do something more and to be more independent. You're going to motivate a ton of people on the way to do the same thing. So thanks, man. 
So as far as chainsaw brands go, I'm familiar and have a lot of experience with Still, so I'll talk about them. I looked it up and they are available in New Zealand, but whatever I have to say will be applicable to all other brands. First thing I would say, before anything else though, is that this isn't something you're just going to spend a little bit of money on, on a generic brand gas saw, and then get going. I mean, if that's all you can manage at first, start with it just to make enough money to buy better gear. But if you have the commitment from a farmer or two, then it'll be worth buying the proper gear up front. So that said, whatever brand you go with, buy from a dealer, and hopefully from a dealer that is in your town or the nearest community. Because you're going to need parts, and you're going to need chains, and having a person who can you can go in and ask questions to is so important. So next, make sure you get some safety gear. Get a good pair of safety boots, a pair of chainsaw pants, a good pair of gloves, a safety helmet and shield, and ear protection. Maybe with Bluetooth built in because it can be long and hot out there and it's nice to listen to some, you know, podcasts or audiobooks. These are really important for anyone and especially for those just getting started learning how to use chainsaw. If you have someone in your area that you know that can show you the basics, great. But if not, watch a lot of YouTube videos and then go out and practice in a stress-free as possible environment. Just get comfortable with the saw and learn how to fell trees. It sounds like you won't be in an area where you need to worry too much about where they fall, but just practice anyway. You probably won't have, it doesn't sound like you're going to have a ton of those really large diameter trees. I would say get as much of a saw as you can afford that isn't too heavy because you're going to be carrying it around all day and you want one heavy enough that it will cut easily, but not too heavy that you're killing your arms. Something that will handle a bit more than the biggest around tree you will be dealing with. A 16 or 18 inch chainsaw will be sufficient. I like the 16 myself. It'll handle most anything you need to cut. And if you go with something like the MS-271 from Still, you can always upgrade the bar to an 18-inch if you find the 16's a little short for what you need. Now, the big thing, though, is that smaller scrub or scrub brush you talk about. It's an absolute pain in the butt to try to cut with a chainsaw. It tends to pull it in. It tends to jam it by the gears of the saw. It can be a bit dangerous, and it just doesn't like to cut with a chainsaw. Plus, who wants to bend down all day to cut that kind of stuff? and you're going to invariably end up dulling your chain the more times you get close to the ground. So for anything that's a bit more than 2 inches in diameter or smaller, you really should have what they call a clearing saw. And if you aren't familiar with them, they look like a lawn trimmer or weed eater that's lifted weights and taken steroids for a few years. They have what looks like a circular saw blade on the end, with two handles and a harness you can swing back and forth. This will make much quicker, much easier, and safer work when trying to clear all the scrub brush and smallish trees. The loggers and the land clearers in the area where I grew up use these all the time. There's a bit of a learning curve to them, but not much at all, really. It's mostly about getting the harness adjusted and comfortable and then learning how to swing them side to side. So the, the still FS360 or the 560, it's more expensive big brother, will more than do the job for you but neither are cheap. But if you're serious about doing this sort of thing, these clearing saws will quickly make your money back and will keep you making money for years, if not decades, down the road. They're built tough and do what they're supposed to do, and they just do it well. Most of this sort of side hustle is just putting in the time and the sweat. There isn't a ton of skill involved, but it does require a bit of an upfront investment, but the payoff will be great and fairly quick. If you're an absolute newbie, maybe post online or approach a farmer who needs work and offer a promotion. 
a decent price where they feel they're getting a deal and you're able to practice and hone your craft without feeling the pressure to be perfect. There's a ton more I could cover, but for now, I just wanted to brush over the bare basics. If you want to follow up, feel free to email me at therealtimcook at gmail.com if you have more specifics to your specific situation that you might want some answers on, or follow up with Jack if you want it answered as part of the expert council. So that's it for me, guys. When you have time and you need a bit of inspiration to get up and get out and start a side hustle or a full-time gig, go over to toolmantim.co and check out my Odyssey channel or my YouTube where I post five videos a week to keep you informed and inspired. Ideas on making money, building a business, tool and gear reviews, and more. And keep the questions coming to Jack. Anything regarding handyman work, landscaping, side hustles, being a solopreneur, living in the vast cold wasteland that is Canada, anything like that, feel free to send in questions for me. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So, um, love everything Tim had to say. Definitely chainsaws are not the greatest tool for a job like this. A lot of times what happens, even where they will do a pretty decent job with, like, small scrub and, and spongy scrub is that chain touches the ground. There's rocks in the ground. The chain's dull like that fast. Also, a lot of this stuff can throw chains off bars. Uh, that can just be inconvenient or can actually be dangerous. Uh, it's just not a great tool. So some of the stuff Tim gave you is a great idea. Depending on the situation, I would almost wonder if, like, goats are the way to go with this. Like, if you just clear out a, a laneway, throw in temporary electric fencing and put a few goats in there they'll they'll clear that shit way fast at least what they leave behind will be easier to work with because my addition to this one is it's two things do not even begin to underestimate the man hours that you will put into clearing a relatively small area it is in a tremendous amount of work to clear stuff like this when you're when you're dropping actual trees timber and cutting up bullwood and even dealing with some slash you, you can go fairly quickly. When you're dealing with tangled shrub and scrub brush, it is unbelievable, one, how long it takes, two, how much of a pain in the ass, and three, how much bulk there is to get rid of. So one of the things I'd really look at is, you know, a, a really, like, industrial-level chipper shredder, and that's expensive. That is so expensive that it might be cheaper... And more effective to get something like a small excavator with a grabber for work like this, depending on where it is. And I know you said it's steep and all, but it depends on how steep. Excavators can handle some fairly steep slopes in the hands of a competent operator. I don't know, really. I'm just like, this is one of those ones. There's a reason no one's doing it. And there's always opportunity when no one's doing a thing. But there's always also a reason when no one does a thing and a demand for it exists. It's usually because to do it profitably, is it costs more than the market is willing to bear. So I would say, like, don't go all in on this. You need to kind of, like, test the waters and see if this is something you actually want to do. Because I have no doubt you can get customers. I do worry that you'll be able to do this profitably. It is a... It is a major pain in the ass, and it is one of the things that will make you have, if you ever clear even like a 100-foot-by-100-foot area with chainsaws and, 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 and bushwhackers and, you know, I, I, reciprocating saw is great for a lot of this work as well. Like if you ever do 100-by-100-foot, and then you think back to the great era of homesteading in the United States in the mid-1800s and people settling this country before any tools like this existed, 
you will have a tremendous new respect for our ancestors. I cleared out an area, I think it was about 20 by 30 feet to put in a greenhouse uh, on my property in Arkansas. And I remember I sat down that night, sore, and just thought to myself, how did those men and those women do what they did? And I had a totally new respect for them. Just keep that in mind. Uh, next up, hey, we got a holiday weekend coming. Lots of people like to have barbecues over a weekend like this. Joe Biden says maybe, just maybe, just maybe, if you got vaccinated and you wear 18 masks on your face and your ass, then maybe, just maybe, you might be able to take your mask off for a few moments in your backyard and have a little barbecue with a few of your friends and family. Maybe. The rest of us who don't listen to nonsense like that are going to have great big backyard bashes. And potato salad traditionally goes with barbecue. You want to take it up another level? Start off with baked potatoes. Chef Keith Snow on one of the best potato salads you'll ever make or ever eat. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to share a little recipe for what I call baked potato salad. As it warms up, I get emails from people and phone calls from friends and neighbors and family asking about springtime or picnic-style recipes. So I wanted to share this with you. I've been making it a little bit here in our house, and uh, I brought it to a few little get-togethers, and it's always a big hit. Very simple. First thing I'll do is go through the ingredients that you need to make baked potato salad. First up, the potatoes, Idaho russet potatoes. Don't try to swap out Yukon Golds, Canabex, Red Bliss potatoes, whatever. The starch content and the makeup of the potato called russet is the one you want. And those need to be carefully scrubbed off under running cold water with a little scrub brush because they're pretty dirty. After we get done making the potato salad, the skins uh, can be used to make just about anything. I mean, my kids just take them after I scoop out the potato meat and they just munch them down. So make sure that they're clean and, um, yeah, you'll get a second use out of them. Next thing you'll need is an unflavored oil, like a light olive oil, maybe a safflower oil. Um, Coarse salt, I use kosher salt. You could use Himalayan pink, Celtic, you know, whatever you really want. I just wouldn't use table salt or iodized salt. You'll need black pepper, mayonnaise, and either chives or green onions, and those need to be carefully washed. Okay, so first thing you'll do is go ahead and fire up your oven to 350 degrees, and while that's preheating, you'll scrub off your potatoes once they're all very clean. You'll dry them with some paper towels, toss them in a large work bowl, and put in about one tablespoon of the oil. Just drizzle it all over the potatoes. And then maybe, um, I would say, two teaspoons of your coarse salt. Toss it in there. And then just take the sides of the bowl. I use a big stainless steel work bowl, and I just toss the potatoes around um, until they're very well coated, they're oily on the outside, and that they're uh, well salted. Next, I'll take a, uh, the tip of a sharp knife and pierce each potato a couple of times, like maybe two pierces top and bottom. That way they don't explode in the oven, which they can do. So then they go on a sheet tray. When the oven um, comes to temperature, or even if it's not all the way there, I throw them in there. I set the timer for 90 minutes. That's an hour and a half for those of you that... Um, aren't great with math. So an hour and a half, they're going to bake. And when that timer goes off, I turn off the oven and just crack the oven door. And you want to let the potatoes cool down, you know, for at least 30 minutes until you can handle them. Now, the idea here is you want that 
potato flesh inside to fully cook through. In other words, it's going to be tender inside. And then as it cools, it's going to um, crystallize. And what actually happens sort of, you know, on a scientific level is you're creating a resistant starch. That's very good food to eat if you're trying to build your gut health because the healthy gut bacteria like to feed on resistant starch. You'll see a lot of that in the media. Anyway, you've just created a resistant starch by cooking the starch in the potatoes and then letting it cool back down to room temperature or even colder in the refrigerator. So the idea here is if the potatoes are really easy to scoop out, in other words, you cook them and you're in a rush, you cut them open, you scoop it out. If they're too warm, they won't solidify and you'll just have sludge. And that's not what we want. So make sure that you allow them to cool all the way down to room temperature. So this procedure is at least two hours. Total cook time and cool time might even take them a little longer. So once they're good and maybe they're just barely, barely warm to the touch, slice them in half and you take a spoon and you carefully scoop out the flesh. Now I like to take the spoon, I've got the potato and I cut them uh, lengthwise. So I've got an oblong piece in my hand, I'll take the spoon and make you know, I'll push through and kind of make cut marks, and then I'll scoop down through the side. You don't want any of the skin. So you, you're going to leave a little layer of potatoes in there. That's fine because later on you can uh, use them. So once you scoop it out, you should have nice, firm chunks. If you go and start scooping it out and it's all mush, you have not let them cool long enough, and I will not be responsible for the results. So make sure they're good and cooled. Scoop them all out into the bowl. Then in another bowl, I take my mayonnaise. I use, um, I like to use avocado mayonnaise, sometimes primal mayonnaise, because the oil that's in regular store-bought mayonnaise is not the kind of oil you want to eat a lot of. Usually GMO soybean oil is the first ingredient. So I would get a different oil. If you don't give a crap about that, you know, use Hellman's or out on the West Coast, Best Foods. Uh, definitely not that crap called Miracle Whip. So you'll put in... Um, enough. What is enough? That's totally up to you. So I usually do six potatoes and I'll put in about a half a cup of my mayonnaise and then I season it with salt and quite a bit of black pepper, a lot more than you might think that you need. And then I have my either chives or um, green onions. When my chives are growing, I'll use those and I make sure they're rinsed and dried. I mince them up toss them into this dressing, and then I even sometimes like to put in maybe a tablespoon of sour cream. So that gets in there. I take a whisk, whisk that together, and that is the dressing. You don't need any vinegar. You don't need any mustard. You don't need anything else. So don't try and complicate this. What's great about it is its simplicity. Then you're going to take a rubber spatula and scrape that mixture into the work bowl where you've scooped out the potatoes, and then use that spatula or a spoon, and you're going to toss it together, trying not to mash it. Now, again, if you've done it right, it's going to be very chunky, and that's what's great about it. So toss all these ingredients together, and you don't want this thing murdered with mayonnaise. So, you know, add half of it, toss it together, and see how it feels. Um, you're going to want to taste it now for salt and pepper. A lot of times there's just not enough salt. So mix it all together well and try a piece. If it's bland... You can season the top of the potatoes and toss them together one more time. And as far as the amount of chives and green onions, you want quite a bit in there. You don't want one or two pieces all you know here and there. You want them to be well seasoned with that oniony flavor. Now that's really it. I like to finish the top of it with again 
a bunch more black pepper so you can visibly see it. And I use, you know, freshly cracked black pepper. Now, this is an excellent dish. You can refrigerate it overnight, but it's definitely way better at room temperature. So if you're going to bring it to a picnic, you know, you got a 10-minute drive, yank it out of the refrigerator, drive over there, set it out. And you're going to see that um, it's really well-liked by your guests and family and all that and uh, kind of dangerous for me to have around because I try not to eat a lot of carbohydrates and uh, I can snack on that stuff and eat the whole bowl. So that's a great little recipe for you. I hope you guys try it. Uh, let me know what you think about it. You can email me, um, Keith at HarvestEating.com or KeithSnow at Gmail.com. Don't forget to check out HarvestEating.com. We have the following spices in stock. Uh, my steakhouse blend and my grilled chicken seasoning, which I have reformulated. It's even better now. It has hatch green chili powder in the mix, and it is fabulous. So go check that out. And also do consider checking out the course at foodstoragefeast.com. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great weekend. Jack, I hope you enjoy your vacation, man. Take care. And next up, knotweed is one of the most annoying things to end up with on a property. But can we use it for something useful? Uh, the guy that I knew that would know an answer to a question like that would be the guy that's all things plants, Nick Ferguson. Nick, what can we do with some knotweed? Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson here with an expert counsel answer on fodder for rabbits, which happen to be one of the top three animals I say are the most efficient protein sources on a homestead scale production system. And the main reason is they're small, fast-growing, and reproducing herbivores. They eat just about any kind of leaf mass. But how about I actually read the question before I get into the answer, huh? <laughs> All right, this, uh, let me just read the question. Jack, my question is for Nick Ferguson. Would Japanese knotweed be a good fodder feed for rabbits? Looking around at no input fodder feeds. Thanks, Wade. Well, Wade, the first question is, can we feed it without detriment? Is it going to poison them? Is it safe for them to eat? And I didn't know the answer, so I did some research. I still don't know the answer. <laughs> uh, I've seen several people report having fed it as part of their rabbit's diets for years, multiple generations with no ill effect reported. So I'd assume it's reasonably safe for them to eat. I wouldn't go whole hog with it and make it like all they eat, but maybe try a bit as part of their diet and then kind of bump things up a bit. You know, you might want to experiment with it on one of your least valuable animals. If you have one that's destined for the stew pot, maybe you feed it a whole bunch of it and see what happens. Um, most likely it's safe to eat. I mean, it's safe for humans to eat and it's actually not all that bad. It's high in oxalates, so it can cause some problems, but as long as you're not making it a major part of diet, I don't think it's going to be any big problem. But let's answer your question a little better. Is it a good fodder for rabbits? Because that's exactly what you asked. And I have an answer for you. I don't know. <laughs> but seriously, I don't know if it'd be good or not because I don't have it anywhere around here. So... Give it a shot, and please report back to me. I'd love to know for sure so I could advise people in the future. Hey, I said I had an answer, not that it'd be a good answer. What I can tell you is what does make good rabbit fodder. White mulberry leaves, they're my number one top pick. Honestly, grasses, clover, white mulberry leaves, and some other assorted greens, 
that you're going to pull out of your garden, something like sweet potato leaves, not Irish potatoes or tomato leaves, anything in those uh, nightshade family are toxic. Garden scraps, you know, scrap pumpkins and squash and stuff like that is fine. All of that makes up for a fantastic rabbit diet and shouldn't honestly cost you a penny. So to recap, can they eat it? Most likely it's fine. Should it be a significant part of their diet? Probably not, but try it and let me know. Uh, for a decent list of safe and toxic foods for rabbits, check out riseandshinerabbitry.com. All right. Well, I hope that helped. I am Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and Rare Plant Store. Do good things. So my my personal little addition here, when it comes to fodder for any critter, right, when we're we're going out and we're procuring leaf matter, stem matter, etc., for rabbits, chickens, ducks, whatever. I'm feeding my duck, uh, my ducks right now, um, a significant amount of a uh, a water plant that is actually a fern known as a zola, and, and that's fine. When you are though bringing the thing to the animal, and so the animal going to the thing. Variety, 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 variety. And if you find that they just don't eat something, then replace it with something else, right? So I just scoop out about, I don't even know how much. But if you know the, the, the square plastic containers with a bunch of holes in them for, uh, like, water plants to go in, you know, I'd say they're maybe half a gallon in size, about that. And since they have holes in them and I have bunches of them, I just scoop you know, a, a, a full thing of a Zola out of one of my ponds, and I dump it in one of their feed bowls. And then that, since they're free range, they can go anywhere, and they eat as much of it as they want, and they don't eat any more than they want, and they get plenty of variety. Where I worry when it comes to fodder and something like a rabbit, since a rabbit tends to live in a cage, they don't have that freedom of choice, so I think variety is even more important because anything can have can be good fodder and at the same time have too much of something. And by giving that freedom of choice and creating that variety, I think that you're a lot safer in those decisions. Next up, let's hear from old Doc Bones on pneumonia. Hi, Joe Alton MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus the author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I've talked about COVID-19, influenza, and bacterial respiratory infections before, but I haven't really talked about pneumonia. If you follow Doom and Bloom's website, you might remember I did write an article on new pneumonia in which I mentioned a mysterious new illness that affected a grand total of 60 people in a place called Wuhan, China. This time I'm talking about pneumonia for a different reason. I have it right now. More on that later, but let's talk about pneumonia in general. Pneumonia is defined as an inflammation of the lung usually caused by a bacterial or viral infection. Occasionally, fungi or parasites give rise to it, but it's a very general term and it doesn't identify the specific microbe. Your lungs are part of the respiratory system, part of the body that controls breathing, inhaling fresh air brings oxygen to tiny air sacs in the lungs called alveoli. Little blood vessels in the alveoli absorb oxygen from inhaled air and remove waste gases like carbon dioxide during exhalation. This vital process of oxygen in and carbon dioxide out is what we call gas exchange. Anything that interferes with it can become life-threatening. 
In pneumonia, the alveoli fill with pus and inflammatory fluid, preventing the proper absorption of oxygen. Milder cases of pneumonia may affect just a small section of the lung, but severe cases can affect the entirety of both lungs, what was once known as double pneumonia. Mine's in two areas of the upper lobe on the right side. More than 1.5 million ER visitors receive the diagnosis of pneumonia every year in the U.S., and that's before COVID. Most of these cases are in the elderly, the very young, or those with poor immune systems. With COVID-19, it affected older people the most. Me, my test came back negative, as did tests for influenza. It's thought that I might have had some stomach acid go into my windpipe while I was sleeping. Secondary pneumonia tends to be bacterial, with worsening shortness of breath, continued fever, and thicker mucus over the course of time. Like COVID-19 cases, pneumonia may be primary, that is, an occurrence in and of itself and can occur in an otherwise normal person. It can be secondary in response to a weakened system or some other infections, heart disease, asthma, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, cancer, or even just old age. You can expect to see coughing that produces mucus, sometimes with bloody streaks, that's me, fever and chills, low grade, up to 100 for me, fast breathing, no, Fast heart rate, me, up to about 110 beats per minute for one day only. Shortness of breath, no. Chest pain, no. Exhaustion, yes. Muscle aches, no. Loss of appetite, well, not really. People with the worst cases may turn blue around the mouth or fingertips, a condition called cyanosis. Cyanosis is a sign that the body isn't transporting enough oxygen to the tissues. When you listen to the lungs using a stethoscope, an area with pneumonia often sounds as if someone was crumpling a piece of paper right next to your ear. It could also sound like a fine crackling or even a bubbling sound. This is because of fluid filling up your alveoli. Why I have pneumonia is not known for certain, and I'm still in the middle of testing. Many microbes can cause pneumonia, so it may take a while to discover the offending organism, even in normal times and with modern technology. When treating pneumonia, antibiotics are commonly prescribed, but it's important to know that antibiotics work only for bacterial infections. But that's not uncommon at all in some populations, and so antibiotics are often used in folks, let's say, like me. I was given metronidazole and levofloxacin, drugs I've written about before. You'll find them at doomandbloom.net that preparedness folk actually use and can find in veterinary equivalents. The choice depends on the microbe involved and the available drugs, something you won't know in a survival setting. Other oral drugs that may help are some that I've also talked about on this channel. Amoxicillin, doxycycline, azithromycin, cephalexin, and clindamycin. Occasionally, the organism that causes pneumonia may be a fungus. One example is coccidiomycosis, known in the American Southwest as valley fever. Symptoms include persistent cough, fever, headaches, fatigue, and shortness of breath. The treatment most often used is the oral antifungal drug, fluconazole. Last time I looked, there were still some antifungals available in veterinary form. In cases of influenza, antiviral medications like oseltamivir, Tamiflu, Zanamivir, Relenza, or Baloxivir Marboxyl, Zofluza, will shorten the course of the infection if taken in the first 48 hours after symptoms appear. After the first 48 hours, there's a lot less medicinal effect noted. These drugs are not known to be effective against pneumonia caused by other viruses, however, even COVID-19. Other treatments include alleviating the symptoms. You might want to give acetaminophen, Tylenol, for fever, for example, and guaifenesin, Mucidex, for congestion. Cough suppressants may be recommended by some physicians, but they're not always helpful. Coughing helps remove the thick mucus that's in your lungs and shouldn't be suppressed unless it's so severe that breathing is difficult, causes vomiting, or prevents sleep. 
I'll say from personal experience, the better hydrated I am, the better I feel, so push fluids. Warm beverages, humidifiers, and steam inhalation may help bring up mucus. Make sure you get plenty of rest. That's a big one. And for goodness sake, don't smoke. I believe that attitude is important when it comes to medical problems. I'm maintaining a positive attitude, and I'll be damned if I let this thing beat me. Hopefully, I'll be back soon to writing more articles on medical preparedness, and yes, even a new edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Thanks for your best wishes and prayers. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you believe in our mission, do us and your family a favor by checking out our entire line of quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Next up, Derek Pompietro with a segment on vehicle prep and vehicle safety. Derek, take it away. Happy Friday, TSP listeners. Not sure what Friday this is going to air on, but I am either heading on vacation, still on vacation, or just coming back from vacation. And either way, it's a good day for me. But I wanted to do a segment on vehicle safety in that a vehicle can kind of be a multi-purpose tool for you. And it's not just transportation in case we got to go out and get some supplies or in the worst event, leaving your home and going somewhere else for safety and that we have to rely upon this not only to get myself out of harm's way, but maybe your family and some survival gear as well. So regardless, I think the vehicle is very important in our preps. And so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about maybe getting our vehicle outfitted for any of those events. And some of the stuff I'm going to talk about is probably more geared towards winter weather, i.e. snow and major snow accumulation and and the risks that are involved with driving in that snow. But, you know, obviously if you're down south, maybe not necessarily such a huge deal. But Vehicle recovery points are huge in that if your vehicle gets stuck in whatever, if it's mud, flood water, snow and ice, there's got to be a way for you to get the vehicle out. Whether that's a good Samaritan that's going to help you out or if that's a tow truck and you want to minimize damage to your vehicle, like they don't just strap it around the axle or the bumper, we need to have a recovery point. Now, if you have a four-wheel drive truck or SUV, there's a good chance that it's already got a tow hitch on it or it's already got hooks sticking out of the bumper, which obviously is the best bet because you can hook anything around those and recover the vehicle. And you can even use those for doing some work, like pulling stuff out of the way. But if you have maybe like a midsize or a crossover, some of that stuff is really tough to find. And if you have a car, well, probably non-existent. So I would say number one is definitely we need to have a point to hook to the vehicle no matter what we're doing. If that's maybe an aftermarket trailer hitch in the back, that's a thousand times better than having nothing. And obviously we can use the trailer hitch to do stuff like pull the trailer, but we can also hook to it and do some work or recover the vehicle. So I would say if your vehicle's naked and has no point to hook to, that would be something I would be looking at. Getting a aftermarket recovery point, whether that's for the front or the back, it doesn't matter. Anything's better than nothing. Now, what are we hooking to that? Well, if the tow truck driver's pulling you out, that's great. Hopefully they're a professional and they have all the proper gear. But if you're trying to use another vehicle to pull you out, we need to have a way to connect the two. Now, chains, we want to stay away from. Chains are very rigid. They don't transfer energy very well, especially when things are rocking back and forth. So we want to be looking at straps. 20, 30 feet is always a good start. We don't have a strap that's too short because the vehicles are going to be very close together. And obviously, if you've run off the road or you're in water or something like that, we want to make sure that the vehicle that's recovering you is out of that terrain. So obviously maybe they're still on the street or in something with a little bit better footing. So again, a little bit longer is typically better. Now for 100, 150, 200, depending on what kind of quality we're looking at, 
we can get a recovery kit, which is going to come in a bag. It's going to have straps. It's going to have D-rings. And all this stuff is great for recovering vehicles. You know, obviously, if you're going off-road, this stuff is priceless and it's kind of necessity. But even for on-road stuff, what if you're trying to move a tree that came down on your property, worse on your house, or is blocking your driveway, whatever. Straps and D-rings are good to have to go one step even further. Kinetic straps are even better. And a strap is pretty pretty rigid, but has some flex to it, unlike a chain. And a kinetic strap is kind of like a big rubber band in that you get to use vehicle inertia to pull you out. So especially if you're trying to pull something out that's just your size or even bigger, it allows a smaller vehicle to do a lot more work. So basically get a running start, you load that strap up, and then finally it pulls back and hopefully that energy pulls the vehicle out. So again, all of these things are fairly inexpensive, but really good to tools to have. A couple of items that I think also are a necessity are for your personal safety. So flashlight, maybe flares. Obviously, we need to be, have some light source to do work or work around the vehicle if it's dark, but we also need something to alert other drivers, especially when we're on the road. People are not paying attention. A flare or a reflector or even a flashlight is going to at least get their attention. Now, more towards the cold weather gear. When it's winter time, I always have a bag in my work truck that's got layers, change of clothes, super heavy-duty jacket that's reflective, but I can be seen quarter of a mile away, and I can stay warm, and it has multiple layers, and it's waterproof. And, of course, I have hats and gloves and all that stuff. So, worst-case scenario, if I'm on the road in the company two-wheel drive truck in the middle of the blizzard trying to help somebody else, and if I get stuck, I at least know that if I have to walk out of here, I've got proper winter boots, jacket, all that stuff to keep warm, or if I'm staying in place and I don't have enough fuel to run my vehicle, then I'm staying warm. I sometimes even go as far as keeping a buddy heater in my van. And that's a whole other conversation about not setting fire to yourself or the vehicle or dying of carbon monoxide while falling asleep, but it's a whole different story. At least I have a source of heat. So you kind of get the drift is that staying warm, your person, your vehicle, maybe having some fuel in the vehicle to run it, and obviously you want to keep the tailpipe clear. And if you carry a gas can on you, again, that extends your time out. All right, next one up are your spares. Spare everything. Can't bring everything with you, but there's a couple of items that certainly having on hand could get you out of a jam. Tires, tires are huge. Spare tire, having air for the tire in case it goes down, having a patch kit or a fix-a-flat. Basically, anything that can get you mobile again if your tire goes flat for whatever reason is certainly going to help you. And if you can't swap it out on the side of the road, obviously patching it or fix-a-flatting it to be able to get to safety is huge. Fuses are certainly helpful. Now, if you open up the hood or underneath the dash of a modern vehicle, there's probably about a thousand fuses and three different types of fuses. So this can be difficult, and obviously you'd want to look at your vehicle because when you work on one of my old 84 Chevys, they have a standard size fuse. So obviously keeping spares is very easy and inexpensive, but with a modern vehicle, there's many different types. So again, you'd want to look at your vehicle, but blowing a fuse could be Something inconvenient like maybe losing lights or a radio, but blowing a big fuse like for the alternator could potentially kill your battery within a couple of miles and then you're dead in the water. So fuses are huge. Even though they rarely will blow, you never know, especially like hooking up trailers, trailer wiring can short circuit lighting fuses in the vehicle. So again, be prepared. Fuses aren't expensive. And that goes with bulbs as well. Now, I don't have to carry every bulb, but if you had a taillight bulb and maybe a headlight bulb, and actually know how to change them, again, it goes a long way. And probably the last one up is going to be fluids. Now, I don't think you're going to be doing like a transmission service on the side of the road, but you never know. 
vehicles have oil coolers for the engine, for the transmission, and sometimes those lines will start to leak. Maybe one of them will blow. Having a couple quarts of engine oil or transmission oil might get you out of that jam. Or antifreeze, so one of your lines st starts to leak on the coolant. And again, instead of overheating, shut the engine off. You let it sit for a little bit to cool down. Top it off, top the reservoir off. So all the things that I discussed are maybe a few hundred dollars combined, depending on what you're looking at. And again, your vehicle is not only transportation, it could be a source of heat or electricity if you're using an inverter. We've talked a lot on the show already about, you know, jump packs and some basic stuff like that. But I kind of wanted to do a quick segment on some additional equipment you might want to have in your vehicle, just in case bad weather, things like that happen. Any questions, send them over to Jack. We'll get you an answer. Take care, guys. Uh, my add on this one, there was a lot of talk about vehicle extraction for stuck vehicles. It happens. Right, it happens on its own. Somebody spins out, goes into a ditch. Uh, somebody's on a dirt road, and it looks like you can get through something, and and, and you can't, or, or what have you. Uh, a lot of people that listen to the show know that I, I spent some time in the army, and that I was a mechanic in the army. Well, I also uh, was um, a Hotel Eight was an identifier on my military MOS. Hotel Eight is the code. Uh, for a vehicle uh, recovery specialist or vehicle extraction specialist, basically a wrecker driver, right? So not only was I a mechanic, I pulled vehicles out of stuck spots. I did that job um, as the like the chief vehicle recovery specialist for my unit uh, for about 18 months in Panama. So if anything happened at all in in in, in my unit, and that was for like that was actually for the the whole freaking battalion. Like, I was the guy that went out and got the vehicle out. And I did it for six months in Honduras where we were working in a really, really, really remote area. And there were some pretty harrowing things that I had to do and had to really think, like, is this vehicle worth the risk to do this? Because is this a risk that somebody's going to get killed getting this vehicle out? And um, I have to say, in all of those recoveries... And I guess you could say there were two, but I'm not sure that the first one that I'll, or the second one I give you will really be not the same thing. But there was only one where I would have considered it a legitimate stuck vehicle. In other words, the operator did everything that they were supposed to do, the way they were supposed to do it, and they ended up stranded anyway. And it was because literally the edge of a road collapsed And, and basically what you would think of as a, a semi-tractor-trailer -tra low boy went over the edge, and the only thing that stopped it from going all the way over the edge is it basically jackknifed on a tree. And I, I can't fault the guy driving for that. Every other instance, every other instance, you just looked at it and went, had you not been stupid, you wouldn't have got stuck. So vehicle extraction, absolutely, but it's kind of like network security. You can have all the network security in the world, but there's no patch for stupid. If you if you take malware and put it on a USB drive and throw it in the parking lot of a, of a company and one of the employees finds it, picks it up, and sticks it in their computer, there's a lot of stuck vehicles that come like that. The other one, they sling-load dropped, one of the airborne units sling-loaded and dropped a Humvee into a swamp. <laughs> so I guess they had to do that training mission, and, and, and there was actually several vehicles and only one got stuck. Uh, so shit happens, but then uh, they they took the their own five ton wrecker in and got the five ton stuck, and then they brought another five ton wrecker in to try to get the first five ton out, and then they got it stuck, 
And then they wanted me to go down there with a Hemet wrecker, which I did, but when I looked at it, I'm like, there's no way for me to get that vehicle out without getting my vehicle stuck to. Even a Hemet would have gotten stuck where this was. It was like, this is dumb. And I don't actually know what they ever did, but I, I basically refused to attempt recovery because you know, you're driving freaking like a $900,000 vehicle that's going to be stuck in the swamp. I think if I remember right, they ended up using Chinooks in some way, helicopters, to get the damn things out. But whatever it was, it wasn't my problem because it wasn't my unit. It was like, hey, we need help. Get in touch with these guys. And like, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> like if it would have been, you know, combat situation or something, I probably still wouldn't have done it. But maybe we would have gotten another Hemet to pull the first Hemet and pull, like make a daisy chain of pulling. I don't know. But like I'm just saying, when it comes to vehicle prep and vehicle extraction, The first step in getting extracted from being stuck is try not to get stuck in the first place. All right. So let's talk about my segment today, which is our quote of the day. This was by Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi said a lot of really great things. But he one time said, perfection is not attainable. But if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. And... I think most people that are familiar with football, and I think most people that aren't even familiar with football, if you said Vince Lombardi, even if they don't know who he is, they know the name. Like, oh, yeah, that's a, that guy, he's some bigwig, right? He's somebody important. He's known as basically the, the winningest coach in NFL history, um, having coached the Green Bay Packers uh, in the 1960s and, and won just a, a, a buttload of Super Bowls before they were called Super Bowls. A lot of folks, because he is so well-known as a head coach of the Packers, don't know that he actually started off as a high school assistant coach in New Jersey, eventually becoming the head coach of that high school. He then went on to coach a college called Fordham as an assistant coach. From there, he went and he spent five years as an assistant coach of the U.S. Army football team. And I think things like that, are part of what made him the amazing coach and amazing leader that he was, working with you know, Army cadets uh, and, and, and starting out as a high school coach. There's not a lot of people that start out as a high school coach, high school assistant coach, and end up a head coach of an NFL team, let alone somebody with his record. And he actually, he actually finished his career as the head coach and general manager of the Redskins just for one year. I just thought that would be interesting to let you guys know that if you didn't know all that. Um, amazing guy. Two-time NFL Coach of the Year, 1959-1961. Uh, Two-time Super Bowl champion. Five-time NFL champion. That's what I said. Like, so really it's like seven Super Bowls. But until uh, I think it was 68 or 69, they didn't call it the Super Bowl. They just called it NFL Championship. Uh, amazing guy. But let's talk about his quote here for a little bit at the end. A little motivation Uh, as we get close to the end of the week. Perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. I'll give you a little tip if you're ever in a job interview. This is one I, I, I use this. I've never heard it from anybody but me. But every time I used it, it literally floored the interviewer. A lot of times in a job interview, you'll get a question along the lines of, you know, When it comes to, you know, fill in the blank with some skill set or the ability to do this job or whatever, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate yourself? And I mean, as soon as they, and I, since I knew that question was coming, they barely finished, and I'd say 9, with total confidence, with no thought whatsoever, 9. 
And it would always throw them a little bit because usually that's a question. People are like, well, uh, if they want to say ten or they're gonna, like, they want, they don't really know what the right answer is. Nine. And it would always come back with something like, well, that was pretty quick, or you know, that was pretty assertive, or you seem pretty sure in that. Why nine? Why not a ten? Or you know, and I would always respond with something to this effect. When it comes to fill in the blank skill set or whatever it was, I, I absolutely believe that you're not going to have another person walk through that door and interview with you uh, that is going to be any better at that than I am. I believe that I can do this job as well as you could expect anybody to do it. But the reason I don't ever rate myself a 10 on any skill set is a 10 implies perfection. Perfection implies that it can't be done any better. When something can't be done any better, we seek striving to do it better. And the only place we can go to from there is decline. And it would generally just, when I said that, I would not say another word until they responded. And there was generally a little bit of a silence as that person digested that and went, holy shit. And some of these people, you know, maybe they've interviewed a couple hundred people in their life and never had an answer like that. The reason it worked is because it was unique and because it was true. Not just true of me, but the, the, the overriding truth in it. When we decide that we have become the master of a thing, to the point where what we do is perfect, we can only go downhill after that point. We always have to be seeking to do something, some piece, some component, some part, a little bit better. And let me tell you, no one would know that like a football coach. When I started doing TSP all those years ago when I was doing it in the car, I did my show in the morning, I got to my office, and I just uploaded. Like There was nowhere near the work that goes into the show now, now that it did back then. Like The notes were already done. I would do the notes at like 4.30 in the morning before I left the house. So literally all I would do is just drop the audio into a timeline, throw the music on both ends, hit render, upload, and then attach it to the post and hit publish. And it was almost that fast to do. It was literally I would go in, get a cup of coffee. It was my company. I was a co-owner in the company, so I had a, an office with a door. I'd go in, I'd sit down, close the door. Before I finished my first coffee, I was done. The show was done for the day, and I took care of everything else in the company for the rest of the day. But when I drove home, I would listen to my own show from that morning. And when I've told people that, some people think it's kind of like, well, that's kind of arrogant. I would listen to that show the way I would watch tapes of myself when I was an athlete. You don't watch tapes of yourself as an athlete To be like, oh, look at me making a touchdown. Or, oh, look at me doing this. Or, oh, look at that right cross that I gave that guy in, 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 in sparring. Even when you win, even when you've done everything to the best of your ability, even when you've made no real major mistakes, there are always flaws that you can recognize. And in recognizing those flaws, you can seek to do better. The balance comes in not letting identifying those flaws demoralize you or demotivate you. Winners not only look for their flaws, but are excited to find them. If I find my flaw, if I find my shortcoming, then I have an opportunity to improve my performance. Since I know my performance could not have been perfect. I know it could have. And when we do occasionally, we have these moments of connection, I'm going to say it's not the case that we cannot have a perfect performance. We can. Every person who has any level of thing they've done in their life that's a performance level measurement, whether it's giving a motivational speech or competing in a sports event or anything like that, 
you may find a point where you come into what sometimes athletes call the zone, where you almost feel separated from yourself and you get into a perfect harmony and everything flows. I've had it, of all things, darts. I played a game of darts one time where I could not miss if I had tried anything I was throwing at. I was like, this must be what it's like for those guys that actually play darts. They're so good they play darts on TV. It was fleeting. And that's what that moment is, that moment of perfection that we can sometimes touch. It is something that, that, that where we transcend something, some barrier. And we think at that moment, oh, I've got it. But we never do. We never do. We do not measure the quality of someone based on the performance they have in that moment. But on their consistency of performance over time. And, and in that, if they are to achieve excellence, if they are, in the words of Vince Lombardi, to catch excellence, they must always be striving for that moment. And then the real difference is when the moment comes, it's recognized, it's cherished, but it's understood that it's not always going to be there. But in that quest, we catch excellence. And we achieve things that otherwise we could not. It's the same reason if you want somebody to clear a three-foot hurdle and they keep hitting it, you give them a three-and-a-half-foot hurdle. And after they knock down the three-and-a-half-foot hurdle, like for five, five runs in a row, you know, 100-meter hurdles, and they give them a three-and-a-half-foot hurdle and they hit it every time, and you put it back to three feet, they go right over it. It's the same phenomenon. It's in seeking to go beyond what you think is possible to what would be perfection, that you may at some point be gifted with that moment, That's that moment of separation where you experience it. But it is also through it that we develop the capacity for sustained, consistent excellence. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support this show is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day... The Turkish-made folding, harvesting, and pruning knife. I love this thing. I found out about it from a listener. The first time I ran it, it sold out in a day. The second time I ran it, it sold out in two days when it came back in. And then the last time I ran it, it sold out in about a week. Maybe this company is switching on to the fact that people actually buy this thing and importing more when they can get them. They're about 20 bucks, and I guarantee you in Turkey where they come from, at a, you know, like if you went to a market or something where they're sold, they're probably five dollars. But they are an amazing tool. They are great for... It's like my number one go-to tool on my homestead now. They're basically like a Japanese rice knife. It's like a serrated sickle. And so instead of chopping, which means when you miss and you're like holding on to brush and you miss, you cut your finger deep to the bone. Right? You have to keep it... In chopping, you have to keep a, a tool razor sharp for it to cut with, with a light chop. With a serrated tool, you kind of grab a bundle of stuff and, and it just cuts. You pull it backwards. And the motion like the blade is shaped. And it just works beautifully. If you're trying to deal with grasses and stuff that are growing around maybe some of your garden plants, you chop, you miss, you hit your garden plant, and you kill your garden plant. All right? You try to pull that big clump of grass out that's growing underneath the celery plant, it yanks the celery plant out of the ground, now you're sad. All we got to do is advantage our own plant. So we reach down, we pull it up to the side, we lay the blade against it, and we just drop it down and we use it for mulch. And our vegetables grow, and our weeds are suppressed and disadvantaged. 
or maybe we're using it for rabbit fodder, or maybe we're using it for its intended purposes to, uh, to uh, prune grapevines. What makes it so cool, and how does it sell out and no one can get one? There is one source that I'm aware of of these things in the United States, and it's a vendor on Amazon. One. And when they sell out, they disappear for quite a while, because I guess Turkey is kind of a, a far little boat ride away across the, uh, the sea. So uh, you want to check this thing out. I've got a great video on it. I've got a great bunch of material on it available to you in the write-up at tspaz.com or go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. But remember, no matter what you buy, if you uh, start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help support us no matter what you eventually buy. Also, you can become a member. You'll get a bunch of discounts. Use the discounts. It pays for your membership and then some. That's, it's really that simple. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more about it there. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Um, because we're doing a Miyagi Mornings on Friday, I'm moving this song to today. This is John Adams selected this song. It's by the Statler Brothers, and it's called More Than Just a Name on a Wall. You know, when I was a kid, if you said The Wall... People thought you were talking about one of two things, and it didn't have anything to do with the Mexican border. It was either the Pink Floyd album's last song, or it was the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And generally, just in the way that you said it, people knew what you were talking about. Right in front of me, above one of my fish tanks, hangs a painting that my wife got for me. And I've seen the scene in this painting so many times in my visits to Washington, D.C., and I've never been to Washington, D.C. and not been to the Vietnam Memorial Wall. It's a man, graying hair, business suit, jackets off, hand on the wall, thinking of his lost brothers. In the wall are reflections of soldiers, and one of the soldiers is putting his hand up and touching his. I've seen that so many times, and I haven't been to D.C. for a long time. The first time I was to the Vietnam Memorial Wall was on a field trip in 1984. And I didn't just see one person in some similar... Of course, you don't see the reflections of those looking back, but you, know, you get what I'm saying. There were probably across the whole place a couple dozen people that you could tell were in deep contemplation, deep remembrance. Some were probably thinking of their fellow soldier who they left behind. Some were maybe young people who never knew a father or barely knew a father that never came home. I almost don't want to ever go back to this memorial because I know what's happening just based on age and time. The average Vietnam veteran today is older than the average World War II veteran was back at that time. I know that there's less and less people that go to that wall that really know somebody or knew somebody or missed somebody whose name's on it. Or that even those that are still here, they've been enough times now that it's just not that way anymore. That wall is more than just a memorial. Those people in those moments made you realize, even when you didn't know a name on, those, on that wall, how real that name was and what that sacrifice really was. Of course, the reason we're having this song and this discussion, Monday is Memorial Day. And so many people fail to understand what Memorial Day is. They act as though it is Veterans Day you know, 2.0. Memorial Day isn't for veterans. 
Veterans are those who served and came home. Memorial Day is for the fallen. And I know some people think that we should somehow turn Memorial Day into some kind of day where we all put you know, like charcoal on our faces and wear sackcloth or something. I don't think so. I am totally okay with a great big barbecue, having a lot of fun, enjoying the time off, being with your family, being with your loved ones. I just think that at some point, some point during that day, we should stop and think about why we have that day. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I saw her from a distance as she walked up to the wall. In her hand, she held some flowers. As her tears began to fall She took out pen and paper As to trace her memories She looked up to heaven The words she said were these She said, Lord, my boy was special And he meant so much to me And though I'd love to see him Just one more time, you see All I have are the memories And the moments to recall So Lord, could you tell him He's more than a name on a place so far away I remember just a little boy playing war since he was three Lord this time I know he's not coming home to me She said Lord my boy was special and he meant so much to me And though I'd love to see him But I know it just can't be So I thank you for my memories And the moments to recall